It's what you all been waiting for, ain't it? People I'm buying this from, Italian families, Jewish families that have bought up 60% of the neighborhood, and they've been holding it for 30 years, you know, and it's paid for their kids to go to college, their grandkids. And, you know, this is a way for us to buy back that ownership. Controlling land is, is, is a very important part of our, a local economy. You know, and so we need to be able to control those now. What you gonna play now? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Oglesby and Scott Show. Yeah. This podcast hosts the belief that business and investing are team sports. We drop gems to help you turn your capital into generational legacy. We're sharing with you the best stories of successful African-American business owners and entrepreneurs. This episode is sponsored by Hood Estates. Hood Estates is offering a Hood Estates Elite Real Estate Investing Program as well as a Hood Estates Trucking Program. All the details can be found in the show notes. You can also find them on Instagram at Hood Estates. Want more money to pay off debt and increase your income? I'm Terry Egioma from Invest with Terry, and I teach an online course on how to invest in the stock market for daily or weekly returns. My seven-step strategy saves you time and erases the guesswork from trading. With these seven steps, I've earned over sixteen thousand in a day without having a large account. Start big or small; these proven steps will increase your profits and decrease your losses. To learn more, visit itradeandtravel.com. And now, here are your hosts, Miss Flipping in Heels, Rashawna Scott, and Mr. Todd Millionaire himself, Charles Oglesby. So this is the Oglesby and Scott Show. My name is Charles Oglesby with Miss Rashawna Scott. Welcome to the show, Rashawna. Thank you. How you doing today? Doing good. So um, you guys all know the purpose of this podcast is to share the stories of successful African-American business owners and investors. We want people to hear the stories of successful examples because they do exist. We also want people to learn that business and investing are the true keys to financial success and generational wealth. With us today, we have a multiple episode um, alum slash vet. I think I've kind of lost count of how many episodes he's been on, but I know it's at least been two. Um, you guys know who he is. He's Chris Senegal. He is a real estate investor. He's a consultant. He's been doing some really cool stuff. He's become kind of like the man to know in Houston um, for changing the mindset of how people look at real estate and how they look at real estate investing and how they look at gentrification. So going to be a lot of value out of in this episode. Welcome to the show, man. Appreciate it, man. Glad to be back. Yeah. So if you don't know, can you give them kind of like a one minute bio of who you are? Yeah. So Christopher Senegal, real estate investor, uh, went to school for civil engineering, did the corporate thing for about a year or two and, Really didn't like it, so just focused on finding my way out and um, did fix and flip. Now um, uh, graduated up to real estate development, and you know I just spent a lot of my time educating everybody else on how to get in the game and the importance of us controlling our own narrative and our own communities through real estate. I love it. I love it. So um, I like that you said you know you figured out how to find your way out because a lot of people um, and a lot of our listeners right are still working a nine to five and want to get out, but can't seem to find that way, right? So uh, fixing and flipping was your your way out, right? Right. So how did you... Shana, Shana, you got to ask him what life was like growing up, because we don't know. Well, I figured he did that on the other two episodes already. <laughs> no, we're never asking that question. That's a Rashana Scott question edition. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So... Before we get into that, what was life like growing up? 
<laughs> All right. Um, I had two decent households. My parents were divorced when I was five. Um, my dad worked in oil and gas and the refinery. Um, my mom had her own psychology practice after she just uh, kept getting stepped on it when she worked for another guy's psychology business. So, um, you know, it was, it was, it was decent. Um, I didn't grow up in the hood. I didn't grow up rich. Um, but you know, I had, I had examples of entrepreneurs around me, even though I didn't know it. And unfortunately, like a lot of our parents and all that generation before us, even if they worked for themselves, they created a job for themselves and they didn't really understand the, the, the full capacity or potential of being an entrepreneur. So they didn't really instill that in you. My mom just did it cause she got tired of working for somebody else and she created her own job, you know? Um, but yeah, so I did have those examples and that, now that I go back and look at it, I realized, you know, that, that, uh, may probably help me a little bit. So it wasn't as far-fetched for me to say, I'm gonna go and do my own thing because I had seen an example growing up. You know? Absolutely, yeah. And that's actually the reason why we asked that question because we wanna know, you know, were you surrounded around other entrepreneurs and things like that? Um, because then people ask me all the time, like I'm one of seven. And so, and I'm the youngest girl. And so people like, so I'm sure your whole family is like into entrepreneurship and stuff. And I'm like, no, actually not, right? And so it's, so it's interesting to see, um, you know, how people broke out of, you know, whatever that was like growing up when most people were not surrounded by it. Or like you said, when you think back, you're like, actually, I kind of did already have, um, you know, that example. So it wasn't that difficult for you to step out. Um, so, let me add one thing though. What's crazy is after I got my college degree in engineering, I got the corporate job. My mom did not want me to leave that job. She's like, I don't understand why you. Of course not. Of course Because even the, the you know the sole entrepreneur sometimes they don't have the benefits, they don't have the health care, don't have the four hundred one k. So they're like, no, it's not worth the stress, baby. Just keep that job, you know. So, you know, so you know. So I, to this day, my mom really doesn't understand everything I do. My dad doesn't understand everything I do, and I leave it that way on purpose because they don't understand it. They just stress over it so much. Like, oh, you make it, you take it too big a risk, you know. So, mm, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so this the stepping out piece. Um, I definitely want to touch on that. Um, was it a matter of like, how did you even learn how to flip houses, right? Like, how did you, and what made you say, "I'm gonna flip houses"? Mm. Um, man, I was just started reading books, just kept reading uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Think and Grow Rich, uh, How to Win Friends, Influence People. All those things just taught you more of a mindset than an actual vehicle to actually use. And um, oddly enough, in 2008, I started off trading options. <laughs> yeah, and so I had a mentor that was doing that. He had a series of fitness gym, and um, he was a brother. And I met him one day out by the pool just on his laptop all day when I was at corporate training. I was like, man, what are you doing? And so he showed me the game on that. But, man, the volatility and the spreads got real bad. And um, it was really hard to, uh, to, to you know, to, to uh, even hedge the bets really well. The spreads were so large. So I was like, okay, let me hit reset. Then real estate just kept coming up. Real estate just kept coming up. And um, I started getting into it. Uh, just by reading more real estate investing books specifically. And then when I moved to Houston, just the, the power of a network. And, um, you know, my, my line brother actually worked for home investors that we buy ugly houses people. He was a property manager for him, but he knew one of their main contractors that was doing all the rehabs for them, a Hispanic guy named Edgar Alvarez. And so he introduced me to Edgar and Edgar was cool. Edgar was like 
33 years old, came here from Mexico when he was 18, didn't go to college. Edgar was a millionaire because he's like doing 20, 30 rehabs a month for these guys. And he had built up his own real estate portfolio. So he became my mentor. So 2008 is when I started flipping houses uh, with his guidance. And, you know, he'd help me pick the houses. He'd do the rehabs. And as long as we both were making money, you know, we just kept the cycle going. So. And so I know you also you were doing some consulting. So were you still working the job while you were doing some flipping? And then as did like yeah. real estate allow you to then start doing consulting or what does that timeline look like? Yeah, so I knew immediately getting out of school, I didn't like the engineering world. So um, I stayed in corporate America, but I got, I, I figured I would try to leverage the, the corporate structure to kind of learn as much about how to run a business as possible. So I got out of engineering and I went into operations, which gave me a shift work schedule, right? So I was running freight terminals, but I had like three days on, three days off. So my off days, I would focus on building my own business. And then the evenings after work, I finished I mean, working on building my own real estate business. Then I got into marketing and business development and sales with the railroad as well, which taught me a whole different side, uh, you know, how to bring the money into a business and, you know, utilize all this ecology stuff. So all that was going good. I was in office like two days a week until 2015. Then a VP tried to throw me under the bus for something that wasn't my fault, you know. So I had built up enough revenue coming from the real estate business to where I had basically matched my income. So at that point, it's like, okay, you realize if, I realize if I continue to put time into this company, somebody can make a decision at any point in time that's going to affect, you know, my livelihood, whether I communicate well, whether I perform well, whether they completely understand what's going on or not, they can make a decision to, to protect themselves or they can be so caught up in other things that they're not paying attention to what you're actually communicating. And then it all falls on you. So at that point, it's like, it's time to bet on myself 100%. Um, and then the consulting came in, Todd, when, uh, when I left, it's like, okay, I got all this knowledge. Most people, when they quit a job, they want to go start a clothing store or open a restaurant or something and just say, forget all that experience that I've had for all these years. For me, I was like, nah, this is gold because if they were paying me a six-figure salary to do this, there's smaller companies that need the same knowledge, the same skill set, the same context I already have, and I can help them secure business and still make money. And so that's so that's how the consulting came in. So um, yeah, I, I still do the railroad uh, business development consulting, oil and gas uh, related logistics and supply chain. So and I, I use a lot of that money just to fuel some of the real estate stuff I'm doing now. Nice. So. Um so in the beginning, I guess, so how many flips did you do before you transitioned into other areas of real estate? Um, over the course of seven years, I would say about about 40. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them were flips and sales. Some of them were uh, flips that I kept as rentals. Mm -hmm. So I kept about 25% of them. So I had about 12 or 13 rentals, individual single family homes at one point in time. Okay. Um, yeah. And what was... Um, what was the market like at that time? Uh, I mean, was it, were you making six figure profits? Were you making, you know, I, I don't know really much about the Houston market um, as far as like price points and things like that. Um, did you have like crazy good profits on deals? Were you, did you ever lose money on a flip? Like what was, what was all that like? I lost money on a few flips. Um, HGTV is not reality. It does not work like that. <laughs> So, I, yeah, mean, no. I mean, because people here like, wow, okay, you flip 40, you know, houses yeah. and, and yeah. you know, people think like, oh, wow, okay, that's. Yeah, that's no, I mean, average profit after everything, the real profit on the flip, if you, if you have a successful flip, your profit is on like 18%, right? Because you, you start off with that 70% rule, which means at least 30% margin, but then you got your sales costs, you got your closing costs, 
and you got your carrying costs included in that 30 percent supposed to be profit so you really walk away with about 18 percent so um anybody posting these six-figure checks you know consistently they have to be in a market where there's really huge spreads or some of that is them recouping cash investment that they actually put into the profit but they're acting like it's profit it's really not profit um so yeah but for me um it was no it wasn't no six-figure spreads except on, on one deal we made like, um, like 105,000. but the rest of them 20,000 30,000 even 15,000 was base hits you know and you, you continue to you know build and reinvest and uh and continue the cycle um and then we don't, people, a lot of people don't even talk about the tax penalties or tax hits that you get from all of this these cash profits right so it all looks good coming in but then when you settle your balance sheet at the end of the year it's like you know you got to figure out some ways to protect some of that some of that uh that capital gain that you had and some of that profit so um for those reasons and also for um having single family rental properties where you know, your cash flow $400, $500 a month, but you you bought and rehab the house and you only fixed what needed to be fixed to get it uh, ready for occupancy. Then the AC goes out two years later or the roof needs to be repaired two years later and that wipes out 18 months of profit or eight months of profit. No, that's the, type of the, that's the side of the business that people don't really talk about. Um, so yeah, money was made. It was, it was proof. Like I said, I replaced my income, but always looking to scale up and do bigger things and kind of not, not stay in the box that we're all kind of taught to stay in with some of that stuff. Absolutely. Um, so speaking of uh, scaling up and doing bigger things, in what, 2013, you added developer to your title, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so um, you saw a vision, right? You had a vision um, for an area right outside of downtown Houston um, to where you said you were going to, you know, build these new construction homes. And, um, you know, obviously I followed, you know, your, your journey from uh, when you first started building to now, um, but not from 2013. <laughs> but um, t- tell us what that was like, because I know you sat on it for a while and I'm sure you had to go through a lot, like with the city to get, you know, getting things approved and, and that whole process and even just seeing the vision, right? Um, I, Tell us what, what all that was like and your first time getting into it. I'm not sure there was fear, there was doubt, there was probably all sorts of obstacles, right? Yeah, no, the reality. I think the first time I interviewed with Todd, I hadn't even started the project yet. It was still a vision, still trying to put it all together. Um, but yeah, so 2013 is when I decided I'm going to try to shift and control bigger uh, contiguous parcels of land that have more real estate on them because it's kind of concentrated, right? And um, you don't have to worry about Finding the next deal every every month because you got you have enough to do that's gonna take you a while to get the project done and on the back end you know you, you still clear the same amount of profit um, and like it's like you said doing it in a neighborhood where it made sense so for me uh, we all know about gentrification it's common uh, conversation amongst us but no one had really tried to figure out how do we participate in it how do we kind of control what's going on we know these neighborhoods do need nice things they do need stuff to come back but how do we do it without displacing people how do we do it uh, where it's intentional that, you know, we are revitalizing versus a negative uh, note of gentrification. But yes, yeah, so I bought this property in 2013 using uh, seller financing. Couldn't use a bank. It was in the hood, but it was like right on one of the major freeways. It had downtown skyline views. And it was like the last quadrant in Houston that hadn't been redeveloped. So everything was, if you look at the city on the map, everything's like going counterclockwise around downtown as far as redevelopment. And this was that last little quadrant. And so I was like, eventually it's going to be worth something. Um, and I 
I just use some creative strategies to let it cash flow and carry itself. What I did was I just did, uh, instead of fixing the houses up a whole lot, I knew I couldn't run them for a whole lot, even if I did that. I just moved in uh, uh, parolees out of prison, you know, so gave single room occupancy, charged them 350 a room, all bills paid. But then you got a house that can sleep four that's bringing in $1,400 a month, whereas even if you rehabbed it, it would only rent 850 you know. So uh, that was a good way to let it carry itself and uh, you know, put some money in my pocket to help me figure out the development plan. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a big jump. A lot, there's a lot of us doing fixing. Well, there's some of us doing fixing, and very few of us actually doing new construction and development. So it's hard to get into those circles, into those rooms. So a lot of bump in my head, figuring out, trying to network with people. Some of the people that got it, you know, felt like it took them so much to get it. They don't want to give it to you. You know, they don't want to create their own competition. So um, I, I started out working with a group of people of like minds that all had the same vision. You know, they all in different positions. Some of them knew money people. Some of them knew big contractors. Some of them had banking relationships. I had the opportunity with my hand. And um, but we just could never get it done because nobody had actually done it, you know. So that's the problem when you when you surround yourself with people that think like you and on your same wavelength. Um, you still need somebody, um, unless you get really lucky, somebody's actually done it so that they can actually tell you show you what you need to tweak to get it to get it across the finish line. Um, so yeah, so yeah, it was definitely scary. I definitely put I bet on bet on everything. I sold all of my rental portfolio just to focus on this project. Um, I wanted to have a clean balance sheet, you know, didn't want to have any debt or anything on there because I knew I would need all of that leverage to be able to try to get the loans for the construction. Even though the first 23 banks told me no, well, first three banks and lenders combined, private lenders, hard money lenders, everybody. Um, but I finally figured it out. Um, private money um, had some, had one person roll over a 401k to a self-directed IRA. Use that for carrying costs. Like I said, I took my profits from selling my rental properties. Um, to get the get the the plans ready to get the, everything ready to go vertical, basically start building the houses. So yeah, and after that it was just education, educating everybody on. I'm doing this project in our neighborhood. The gentrification is coming. The revitalization is coming. Let's get in early. Let's put ourselves in a position to participate in this process, have the value appreciation, and be the representation that the neighborhood needs of successful people that move back to the community. So. Absolutely, absolutely. Man, that was. I, good. I feel like I've been talking for an hour. Yeah, no, that was good. That was like <laughs> so much in the, what you just said. Um, I'm sure Charles wants to pick it apart. Well, um, I just think it's it's interesting because, I mean, most people think that banks are the determining factor on uh, upon which something makes sense financially to do for a community, and so if a bank doesn't do it, then they just assume either that it's not viable or that it shouldn't be done. So how did you, in your wisdom, know that it made sense despite all the no's? Well, the thing you know about a bank is they're conservative because they have money that they want to put out into something and make sure they get it back, mm -hmm. right? And they have a whole team, the underwriter team, the people that looks at every single detail of what you're doing and they check in and verify that it is possible to get the money back. Well, in a neighborhood like this, where I'm literally going to be the first new construction, they can't go out and get an appraiser to pull comparable sales of other sales that happen in the neighborhood. doesn't mean it's not a demand there. They just don't know where to start, right? And then they look at me and they say, well, wait a minute, you've been fixing and flipping houses. You don't have a resume for building. You don't have a resume for development. You know, so you, we don't we don't think that you fit the criteria of somebody we would want to give money to. But 
you know, it's one of those things where there's always got to be somebody to do it first, right? And after it's done, then people say, oh, okay, it's feasible. It can be. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's what it was. Like, okay, I'll just figure out a way around them. Um, you know, like you said, uh, most people think the only source of money is the bank, but there's money everywhere. You just got to get more creative with figuring out how to get it. Um, so, like, I had the benefit of the seller owning this property and inheriting this property from his dad with no debt on it. So he was had the flexibility to be able to own or finance it to me, right? And then, you know, I had other resources of where I had to make the decision that even though I could be prideful and say, man, I built up this portfolio, I'm going to keep this, and I'm still going to try to do this project. I was like, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take what I've done. I'm going to liquidate it. I'm going to get rid of it because I'm going for a bigger goal now. I know I can do that if I, I can rebuild that if I need to, but I'm going for something bigger. So then took that capital, put that into the project, and then found somebody else that believed in it. Somebody else that said, okay, I see where you're going with it. They had money sitting on the sideline, um, you know, and they trusted my vision. Uh, I had put together a good architect team, a good uh, home builder that built big volume. And so, you know, it, it was, I had de-risked it as much as possible, basically. It wasn't just me trying to figure it out. I had experts in other areas that I needed all around me. And so at that point, that gave me the final push I needed to uh, get the capital to get uh, get started. And then I finally found the 24th person I talked to was uh, uh, a hard money lender out of Austin, and, but they had done a lot of projects in California, but they had done the same thing. They were the first to go into a market and build new construction or redevelop or flip houses. So they understood the risk profile, they looked at the area and they, they gave me the, the rest of the money I needed to build the first three, to set the comparables. Now, the same banks that told me no offered me a million dollars you know, in a line of credit to, to build more houses. Yo, it's the Options Trading Workshop, presented by Tide Capital. Learn the fundamentals and advanced trading strategies that allow us the chance to earn $20,000 in side money in one year while working a job and running multiple businesses. That's right. Learn the what, the where, and the how of options trading in this exclusive webinar. To find out more details, hit us up on the link in the bio, on Instagram at Partner with Millie, or on Instagram at Todd.Capital, or just head over to gumroad.com forward slash Todd Capital. Hey ladies, this is your co-host, Rashana Scott. And are you looking for a community of women real estate investors? If so, I want to take a quick second to share with you Infinity Membership. Sorry, fellas, but Infinity Membership is a women's only online community for newbie and experienced investors. Come let your hair down and join a non-judgment zone sisterhood where all of your questions about investing in real estate get answered. This is also an opportunity to learn from the best of the best. Other seasoned and successful women in the industry share their success tips often. Our live group sessions are twice a month and we support each other daily within our private Facebook group. Our sessions range from driving for dollars to working with contractors to out-of-state investing, raising private capital, marketing your deals, and so much more. Does this sound like something that you've been looking for? Well, we would love to have you. For more information, visit us at bit.ly forward slash infinity membership. Again, that's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash infinity membership. So it's it, the reason why I like your story is because I think it should be an inspiration for everybody else. A lot of times people will look at these difficult situations and they'll throw their hands up and they'll just say, okay, well, would it continue to exist how we've ever existed? Because they're not going to do it for us instead of finding that creative way to get around it and then bringing that proof to other people. Wow. 
So it's like anybody who is listening to that, like that excuse is dead. <laughs> yeah. Then all the stuff we use to not improve is dead. He's already proved that it can be done. Exactly. Um, and I like to, so I didn't realize that when you bought the land um, that it had property on it. I thought mm-hmm. you just bought like a vacant lot. No, it was an old grocery store and five houses. And I really mm-hmm. had to clean it up because it was a bunch of drug addicts, prostitutes living on the property. So it yeah. took me about seven, eight months to get rid of them. So this, I, I thought that, um, so the town, we're talking about the townhomes right now, right? Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you knocked all that stuff down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how long, how long did you, uh, before you knocked it all down? Cause you say you rented it out first. The yeah, houses. Three years. So from 2013 to 2016, I rented it out. And in 2016, um, I noticed another guy started building houses in the neighborhood. So I was like, okay, now is my time to try to figure out how to do this. Um, he was in a different zip code, but in the same neighborhood. And so I was, and his, his property is like deep in the community. So I was like, well, wait a minute, if I'm right on the freeway with easy access to everything and people that may want to live in the area, but don't want to traverse the, the neighborhood to get to their house, you know, I, I, this site has to be um, attractive to some people. And so, yeah, I, I took, I, I bet on everything. I, I uh, took some of that money, like I said, that I had, and I, I paid like $70,000 to get the whole block torn down. Uh, grocery stores, houses, and everything. So at that point, it had zero revenue coming from it, right? right. So it was land. So how are you able to kind of, I guess that's what you said, you had to get the cash for the carrying costs. So what does that look like financially? Like you have this huge uh, portfolio of properties on one plot, and they're paying you rental income, and then you choose to destroy that. What what do the numbers look like? And then also, I'm kind of curious to know what the numbers look like as far as construction costs. So um, how much you're paying to build these properties, how much you're selling them for, and all that stuff. Yeah, so the uh, yeah the revenue was about forty five hundred a month um, from from three from the three houses that I had occupied, um, and so you know that went away uh, when I tore everything down. Like I said, it cost me about about seventy five thousand to tear everything down. But you still um, had a mortgage, a seller finance mortgage on the property too, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the, but those payments were they were like uh, twenty eight hundred a month. Okay. So I paid that for. Um, for about three months after the demolition. But then what I did at that point was, as I started talking to banks, I realized to get the construction loan, they needed the land as collateral. So they need, they wanted to be in first lien position. Mm-hmm. So then I went back to the seller and you know I had built a good rapport with him by this time we been, I've been paying him for so long. And I was like, look, we gotta, I, I wanna revamp this. Like I wanna get you paid off sooner. That's how I started the conversation. I wanna get you paid off sooner. This is a 20 year mortgage. I want to get you paid off in three years. But what I need you to do is release the lien on the property and joint venture with me. And as I get this project going and I sell these houses, I'll pay you out a little bit out of each sale until I pay you off the, the rest of the balance that I owe you, which is like 280. So he took it, he bid on it. So so that's, that's how I eliminated having to continue to make that mortgage payment and I freed up the property to be able to be used as collateral for the loan. I love it. I love it so much, so much creativity here. Um, and I think that's the, so many people stop at, right? Mm-hmm. At, at, uh, you know, we need you to release the lien. And mm-hmm. and it's like, okay, well, how am I gonna figure this out? But like you said, you just brought him in as an equity partner saying like, hey, you know, we need to redo some things, but you, you had it in you, you was like, no, nah, like, look, I asked, especially after you talked to so many banks, you was like, <laughs> look, I got to make this work. And um, I talked about this before um, 
I don't know if it's the last podcast or when we when I last talked about it, but uh, the term oftentimes comes up in real estate by being a transactional engineer. I'm sure mm-hmm. as an engineer, you can appreciate that, right? So learning just and figuring out just how to piece transactions together and move things around. Like I think that's one of the biggest pieces to being um, a successful investor. Interestingly mm-hmm. enough, I feel like these people are usually business people. So they understand that business isn't typically cut and dry. You're going to have to get creative. And so that's why I like to go direct to the seller. You don't want to be talking to the middleman because the middleman, he's like, no, it has to be this this, this way or this way or else I can't get paid. And so that's the power in doing that. Um, so as how many, how many um, condos or townhomes do you have built so far and how many do you have left to build? So the project is 14, five of them are built and sold. Um, and I'm, I should be able to start construction on the other nine, like late September. Um, I have contracts on two of those already, so I haven't even started them, but they're already sold. So, um, as a matter of fact, my team is holding open houses today. We're trying to trying to lock them all up as much as possible. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the mission of making sure that young black working professionals understand the importance of buying in these neighborhoods. I make sure I price them the same price as the houses in the suburbs. Um, but they're going to have tremendous value appreciation because of the location. So, so far, you know, the model's been working. All my buyers look like us, same age group, you know. Um, so it, it's been working. Um, and, you know, just con- I want to continue the model after this project is done, hopefully by the end of the year or January. I'm looking and I love, yeah. I love the fact that, I mean, we're talking about 2020, right? So seven years ago, like you had the vision and you knew, like the plan was new construction all along. And so many folks think that, right, real estate is a get rich quick <laughs> overnight um, situation. But no, you, you know, have this is something that you've been working at for a while. Um, so it's great to just, you know, see it come to fruition. And then, like you said, with um, an all black team, I know you have, you know, a black realtor, a black architect, a black, you know, construction company and, and, and all of that. Um, and, and then, like you said, as far as the education piece, like educating the community on what you're doing, why you're doing it, uh, and creating those opportunities for other people to also come behind you and do the same. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, and hopefully, you know, my seven years can be there two years or whatever, you know, just to get it done. So, and yeah. That's the model. That's all you have to do for yourself. It's more than just Chris making money selling homes. It's all the people he's helping along the way, all the people he's creating example for by uh, along the way. Like that's what makes it so powerful. And that's why I'm not pro sit around waiting for somebody else to build affordable housing. You build it yourself. You employ the architects, you employ the realtors, you employ all these people along the supply chain. And then you transform the entire community, not just one person's pocket. So that's dope. Um, and you also have another project that you're working on. And that is the buy back the block, the buy back the block project. Can you talk to us about that one? Yeah, so that one is the, the the I bought a portfolio of rental properties in the same neighborhood. So when you come when you think about revitalization, usually the the negative gentrification word comes up because everybody is referencing displacement. Right. And so displacement is usually because the investors come in. And everybody's focusing on, like you said, that personal gain, personal profit. So you're taught to go in, renovate a house, raise the rent as high as possible. The tenants can't afford it. Uh, too bad, you know, give them, give them a couple months, be nice to them, let them move out. And then, you know, you start making money. Well, that really accelerates gentrification. 
because you're displacing people. Some of these people have been in that neighborhood their whole lives and they're running out of locations that they can afford. So for me, it's like the only way to control the rent is to own the rental property. And so I kind of took the same approach to this that I took to the other block. It's like, find a seller that I don't have to use a bank for, a mm-hmm. seller that owns their property free and clear. And so uh, I wasn't actively pursuing this project, but one of my, a wholesaler in my network brought it to me. He's like, Chris, I got these people that have these 18 houses and these two commercial buildings and they want to sell the whole package. And they're like, can you help me sell it? And so I looked at it and I was like, wait a minute, I'm gonna keep this. Mm-hmm. Cause like some of the tenants have literally been there 30 years, you know, all, all black, um, some older single women, one, uh, one older gentleman's in his nineties on dialysis and they have fixed incomes, you know, social security type, type incomes. Um, some of them still work, but they work hard. They just don't make a lot of money. And um, they had good cash flow. It was bringing in like $11,000 a month. Um, so that's that's solid income. So that's like usually when you buy something, you have to go in and put money into it to start mm-hmm. generating revenue. This one, you have to do nothing. You just buy it as is. And so, yeah, I was able to negotiate with the seller to own the finance that to me as well. They wanted 50% down. Um, they were originally asking $1.5 million for the por- for the portfolio. Um, but I talked them down to, uh, I talked them down 250,000 to 1.25. Um, and I told them, you know, I couldn't really get bank financing for it because they didn't have any accounting records, but I needed two years to work for them to work with me and let me establish accounting records and I could refinance the other half, which is like 650, um, pay that off in two years. So they agreed. They let me take over the property, $600,000 down, no mortgage payments for two years. So that that put me in a great cash flow position, and so that so steady income, great cash flow, an asset in the middle of revitalization and, and gentrification. Um, you know, it 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 sells the same story. It protects the neighborhood, and the value is going to appreciate drastically because of all the revitalization going on. So it was like the perfect mix to say, okay, I got a private lender that can give me the the money. I can put some of my own money into it, but I think this is a perfect opportunity to create a model to show that how we can all collectively invest through crowdfunding and buy these real estate assets in our own communities and not have to be mad at Oprah, not have to be waiting on LeBron to come and save us. You know, we got the money in our community. We could collectively do this. And so that was the whole model. Um, Like I said, I started the campaign in um, uh, like late November last year and it it maxed out at the maximum you could raise was like a million seventy thousand in early July. So, you know, um, I think it's a great, great storyline to say, you know, especially between November and Christmas, everybody was already broke from buying Christmas gifts. Then, you know, you got people waiting for tax season and then COVID hit. So you have all these economic obstacles, but yet we still were able to raise the, the maximum amount and say we could actually raise a million dollars. We now control the whole block and the community. We protected all these residents. And I think one of the best parts is the two commercial buildings are historic. They were built in like 1920, 1925. The street that it's on was the business district from Fifth Ward during segregation. So, you know, doctors, lawyers, banks, hotels, everything was up and down the street. Um, even the entertainment was up and down the street. So one of these buildings, they said T- Tina Turner's been in there. Uh, Richard Pryor's been in there. Um, you know, uh, a bunch and a bunch of... Uh, people from that older generation. So, you know, to be able to say we're, we're preserving that, we're bringing it back to life, we're uh, bringing businesses back into those buildings, which also creates jobs in the community. Um, it's gonna, we're gonna bring the first coffee Wi-Fi cafe to the area. 
So, yeah, I mean, it's it's places all the way around. And it's not just me. That's the best part. Everybody that invested in this, it's not like GoFundMe where you're donating. You actually own this. This is like buying shares of, of any other asset. You actually own it. You get to participate in the value appreciation. You get to participate in the revenue. Um, I'm giving 40% of the, the net profit out, just like, and it pays out just like a dividend, function just like a dividend. So, yeah, a workable model. Nice. So you raised the money. How many investors um, do you have? Uh, Fifteen hundred and twenty-six. Nice. Yeah. And they can and all then, invest like five hundred bucks up until as much as they want to invest. Or what was the minimum? Yeah, two fifty. Two fifty to ten thousand. Okay. And um, let's talk about the regulations that you had to go through or put in place to be able to um, publicly raise that capital, because a lot of people don't. Um, understand or they hear, you know, the word syndication, um, but I'm really sure about the um, the different regulations that are in place um, that you have to go through to be able to properly and legally raise that type of capital. So tell us what that looked like and even the process of getting ready, right? Because I'm sure that was a process in itself. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of documents that the Securities and Exchange Commission wants you to have um, to be able to go out and ask people to give you their money. Um, and there's two ways you could do it. You can go and set up your own entity, your own fund, which will cost you between like fifty to $85,000 with legal fees and application fees. Um, it'll take about eight months to a year to do. Or you can go find a, a platform that's already gone through that approval process and they charge you like a hosting fee, basically like 3% or whatever you raise. Um, and that's what I did. I went that route. So there's a lady named Lynn Smith out of Denver, Colorado, who actually has a platform called ByTheBlock.com. She actually got her certification in like 2016. Um, and we had been communicating back and forth about, you know, opportunities to work together. And then when this project came along, I figured it was a per perfect one to work with her on. Um, so, yeah, so the process is, number one, they do a background check. They want to make sure you don't have any fraud, any, you know, any, 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 any type of uh, inclination indication that you may be trying to steal money from people um uh, they don't they look at your financials make sure you didn't have like a lot of bankruptcies from bad investments and then beyond that there's a bunch of documents that you have to put together one is like a subscription agreement uh one is uh, a subscription agreement that talks about what the people are actually buying you know and the risk involved and then the, um there's a another document called a, a, a private placement memorandum which talks about the proposed project and what the money is going to be used for. Um, yeah. And then you have to have a, a pitch deck, of course, with your, your proposed uh, scope of the project, what you project the future valuation to be when it's done, um, how people get paid out, uh, you know, how many shares you're going to issue. And yeah, that's pretty much the process. And the, 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 I think determining the shares is um, probably something, something that, uh, may seem inundating, but it's really not. You, you really, you really just kind of break up. You decide what percentage of the company you're willing to give up to investors, because they actually own the equity. And so for me, I did 40% of the project, and um, I just then you, you decide, you know, what do you want that minimum investment to be per person? Um, and so for me, I was like 250 is a, a decent number where it can allow anybody and everybody to have an opportunity to do this, um, but. Um, even though the minimum investment was 250, I broke the shares down to $50 increments, um, so that if people want to buy shares later and they just want to buy them 
at fifty dollars a piece they can. Um, so but so fifty dollar shares, but the minimum share investment is five shares, which is two fifty. Um, and yeah, and so that's really the process. Um, like I said, I would, I would tell anybody that's doing it, be very conservative with what you promise because these people or this group of investors are most, most, time, most time will be new investors that haven't really invested in anything else. So they already have some high expectations of what investing really is and how quickly you get returns. So make sure your communication is very thorough and you let, you let them know this is not get rich quick. This is long-term investment. You will, the, the goal is for you to make a lot more, <laughs> a lot more money than what you make in a savings account. But, and if, and if we get lucky, you know, we all win really big. But if not, it's just a sound, solid investment. Todd Consultant presents the Vending Machine Business Webinar. You can only have one job, but you can have as many vending machines as you want. This is your chance to see how we do business and how you can start your very own vending machine business. Avoid the mistakes we made and start winning. You'll be shown how we find, negotiate, buy, and manage our vending machine business, generating thousands per month, and how it has unlimited scale. To find out more details, hit us up on the link in the bio, on Instagram at Partner with Millie, or on Instagram at Todd.Capital, or just head over to gumroad.com forward slash Todd Capital. This episode is brought to you by 24-7 Watches. Shop our limited edition luxury watches at 247watches.com. That's T-W-E-N-T-Y. 47watches.com. Use code Todd Capital at checkout for special discount. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at 247watches. That's at T W E N T Y 47watches. And so part of that, that investment for them isn't just the income, but it's also the appreciation. So what they invest grows in value as well, right? Yeah, that is exactly correct. So, like I said, we, we bought the property at 1.2. Um, I'm projecting that once it's fully occupied uh, on the commercial side, it'll be worth about 2.9 million because commercial property is valued on a cap rate, not on a comparable sales, right? So we build the income up high and we go with a 6% cap rate, which means you make a 6% return on your money every year. If you, if you, if you take the profit and you, you say, whatever this profit is, it's 6% of a total investment. Um, then that's how you determine the cap rate, right? So saying six percent cap rate because it's brand new, it'll be a brand new building from inside out, would take the value of a property that may be worth eighty thousand. It could easily increase it to four or five hundred thousand easily, just because of the revenue coming from it. So, so yeah. So going through that process, everybody that owns shares. This is a direct correlation. You know, you own you own this certain percentage of the asset. As that value goes up, that's exactly how much your uh, your value of your shares go up. I feel like crowdfunding should just be the way that we get things done, period, because it essentially allows you to make your own bank. So I always tell people, like, you go to the bank and you ask for a loan, it's basically a bunch of deposits that they're taking and they're lending you. The bank doesn't necessarily have money. They have other people's money. And so if we can just kind of get the bank middleman out of the way and go direct to our people, now you have the ability to do projects that serve your people. Every, every other community does this. And I think you said that, too. It's like we're the only people who are like, other communities save ours when everybody else is like, no, the Jews are going to save the Jews, Asians save the Asians, Indians save the Indians. Mm-hmm. We can do the same. That's it. 100%, man. Oh, yeah. um, is your goal to eventually knock this down and build ground up development? 
No, not on this site. Um, on this site, I want to preserve this this standard of living. I may make the units a little bit nicer, but the goal is to yeah hold it long term. Let the let the cash flow and the revenue continue. Um, as some tenants move out, we can make some improvements on the units and increase the rent some. Um, but yeah, but this is a project where I mean the people I'm buying this from Italian families, Jewish families that have bought up sixty percent of the neighborhood and they've been holding it for 30 years you know and it's paid for their kids to go to college their grandkids and you know this is a way for us to buy back that ownership controlling land is is, is a very important part of our, a local economy you know and so we need to be able to control those now there is a lot of vacant land in the neighborhood so on those sites i am doing new construction um so this is my model like zero displacement it, it consists of if something is inhabited I'm not asking, I'm not knocking on anybody's door asking them to sell me their house, right? If there's existing rental uh, tenants in the, in the property, I'm trying to go to the landlord and buy the property from them and getting the landlord to give it to me at a price where I can still make a good cash flow off of it so I can protect those residents. If it's abandoned, if it's overgrown, if it's drug infested, if it's, if it's got prostitutes hanging around it, that's the ones I want to buy and tear down and build some nice new construction on and bring higher incomes back to the community. You know, and so I think that's the model that we need to have so that we can rebuild, make money on, on all levels and start having control of our neighborhoods again. So I know a lot of people when they, they start thinking about certain communities and back to those communities, safety is their concern. So what's the plan as far as making sure that these neighborhoods are safe and clean and healthy? Yeah, so I'm not investing in any war zones, number one. Number two, uh, uh, you got to look at what the city is already doing in these neighborhoods. You can tell where redevelopment is going by looking at city improvements. So, and number one, you can look at city plans and see what their five, 10 year scope is and know what areas they want to be revitalized. And then what they do is they go in and they improve the infrastructure to make it attractive to developers. So you're going to look for uh, streets being repaved. You're going to look for new sidewalks. You're going to look for new street signs, um, anything like that. It's going to say, okay, the city's putting some money into this, which usually means they're going to be more focused on cleaning the area up too. Um, and then, you know, we got to start being a little bit more comfortable being there before it's, it's, it's uh, as safe as possible because while we're still calling it the hood, you see somebody else walking through there, walking their dog or riding their bike. You know? <laughs> and then, yeah, and then, you know, two or three years later, it's a whole bunch of them over there and the prices are so high and we claim gentrification and we claim mm -hmm. they, they stole it from us. No, right. all the signs were there. You just wanted it to be neat and clean and done exactly. before you moved in. So you gotta be, you have to be slightly uh, comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, I got the perfect story for that. Um, so there's a part of Houston called, well, another, another ward called Third Ward. Part of it's really nice already. Million dollar houses, $500,000 townhouses. But then you go a little bit farther west and you get close to Texas Southern University, which is HBCU, and it's still very rough, very hood, you know, um, low income. But people have started flipping houses over there. And so one of my guys, one of my boys went over there to the open house to check it out to see one of the first flips that happened. And he noticed 90% of the foot traffic was white. And he was like, man, this is baffling me because this still looked like the hood. So he stopped one of the ladies at the end. He's like, man, I'm sorry. I, I, he said, I'm just curious what attracts you to this area. And she was like, oh, I bought my house in another neighborhood called the Heights. She said, I bought my house in 1998 when the neighborhood still looked like this. My property value has gone up $350,000. So I'm about to sell that house, buy a house over here, and do the same thing. Mm. I'm like, we don't think like that. We don't think like that. 
So this lady probably by the time she get ready to pass on whatever she's gonna pass on to her, her heirs, that's she'll have a million dollars liquid just from moving from house to house in Houston, going to the in the hood. Yeah, started out for gentrifying. Yeah. Like you gotta I live somewhere it. anyway. You might as well make that living experience work for you on the back end. Right, and it's not, and it, the crime isn't as bad as as it may seem from the outside. You can easily have a, a, a your realtor pull the, uh, the the reports, the police reports, so to really understand what's going on in the neighborhood. You can talk to the neighbors that live there before it looks all nice and neat. Ask them what what they like about it, what they don't like about it, mm-hmm. and get a real feel for it before just making you know a blanket decision. You know, yeah. like I said, if 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 you move to a neighborhood and everything already looks nice, you missed the wave. Point blank. Yeah. And typically it seems like crime kind of follows people who engage in that lifestyle. But if you're somebody who goes to work, comes home, takes care of your family, you're not going to really be dealing with that on a day to day basis. Right. Right. And all of my residents in my new construction, like none of them have had any issues. They, they're, they're very comfortable. Uh, two of them are single women that bought two of the townhouses and they're, you know, they haven't had any complaints. So. So I know you've had some communication with Master P. Can you talk about what that's what that's looked like? So yeah, so you know, Master P has always been kind of on the forefront of a lot of initiatives. Rather, some people may call him out of the box or call him like cheesy. They're talking about his food stuff, but he's 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 very smart and he's he's on top of everything. Um, and he recognizes opportunity very early on. And so you know, he's on the whole buy the block back movement too. Now he realizes that we have to control ownership in our neighborhoods, um, and. You know, he, he's uh, about to make a big wave in that. He's working on something really big, working with a, a big banking partner. And um, he's going to have a nationwide movement where it's going to be focused on, you know, controlling our communities, buying them back. And so, yeah, he, he had made a post about it. No, no he, a, a viral video of him was circulating, talking about buying back the block. And I just made a post just, you know, just saying somebody tag Master P and tell him, you know, I, I got the blueprint. And uh, it worked, man. Uh, like people started tagging him, and then like six hours later, his uh, PR person uh, reached out to me, and his uh, media person reached out to me too. So we had a phone call, and I kind of talked about what I was doing right. in the community, and he was like, "Man, this is exactly exactly what we need." And so yeah, he just took my video and posted it on his page, and you know he's got a lot going on with the rollout of the the No Limit Chronicles and um, and you know his his line of food products so he's you know his pr run is on that but as soon as he finishes that we're gonna sit down and talk about uh the the about a black back movement I, I, he wants me to kind of what the discussion is that i will kind of be like a point person for the, the texas market for for his initiative so yeah absolutely he got the right one for the job <laughs> cool so um so many gems this has been such a great episode so far so what what do things look like you know next like i know you're finishing out the townhomes are you looking at any more um acquisitions or you know what 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 does that look like yeah so i have i guess this is the first podcast i'm gonna officially talk about it but i do have uh, you heard it here first wait a minute y'all heard it here first Hi, how are you? I am Andre C. Hatchett, 15-year mobile notary pioneer and veteran. We have created the Notary Business School, which will show you how to start a successful, long-term, needed business as a mobile notary public. Well, with 15 years of experience and with different downturns in the economy, we have labeled this business as being recession-proof, meaning that you can run this business in any climate, any city, any state in America. On average, our students make between 60 and $200 $250 per appointment, which usually takes under an hour. 
I'll say that again. On average, our students usually make between $60 and $250 per appointment as a mobile notary public. If you would like to enroll and save a few dollars, go to the website, millinotarypromo.com. That is millinotarypromo.com. Look forward to seeing you in class. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Hey everybody, it's your girl Erica Williams from the Classy Climb blog. I'm a six-figure YouTube earner and the author of the book Smartphone Millionaire, how to lend to people, real estate, and businesses from the palm of your hand. And if you're interested in the three things that changed my life over the past four years to become a six-figure YouTube earner and investor in multiple properties in multiple states, I would love for you to join me over at the Classy Climb YouTube channel. Yeah, so on the same street where the crowdfunded project is, right on the other side of the freeway, which they intentionally ran the freeway through this black business district, mm. um, the other side of the freeway is a, a cornerstone uh, church that's been in the community since 1947. It's on a five, 5.3 acre track. Um, and the church basically membership has uh, gone down, so they've decided to relocate, so they're going to sell the property. So I'm working on a project right now with that entire site um, to bring a mixed-use development uh to the community uh we're going to actually keep the historic part of the church uh, we're going to remove the additions that were built onto it and then we're going to build uh, a multi-family apartment complex all around it um it's an opportunity zone so this is this is the way that we actually can participate in opportunity zone benefits a lot of people don't really understand that that's really not for us that's really for wealthy people that have capital gains Mm -hmm. um, to protect, it's basically a tax shelter for them. It's enticed them to invest in these neighborhoods. Um, and then whatever they make off of that investment over the next 10 years is tax-free for them. So unless you have big profits on something, you can't really, uh, you can't benefit from the Opportunity Zone directly. Um, the way you can benefit is to get them to invest in your projects, right? right? And so that's what this is going to be. So I'm, I'm going to equity uh, funds that have Opportunity Zone money that want to invest in projects like this. And their goal is to get in, invest, get the tax benefits at the end of 10, at the end of 10 years, pull their money out. So then ownership reverts back to you. You either decide to sell or you buy them out at that point. So my goal is gonna to be to buy them out at that point. Um, but you do get to participate in the profits and everything along the way. So yeah, this project, um, um, the goal is to uh, close on the property by the end of October and I'm bringing on investors for this, but it's not gonna be like the crowdfund. It's gonna be a minimum investment of $100,000 per person, um, you know, cause it's a different tier of project. Um, but, you know, my goal is to get as many of us to invest in it as possible, you know, because uh, this could really be a big significant game changer, right? Like we can now do big commercial developments collectively in these communities and take advantage of this opportunities and all stuff instead of just letting other groups come in and, and buy up these neighborhoods, you know. So, yeah, that project, that project is coming up next. Absolutely, absolutely, I love it. And can you just rewind a little bit for those where the Opportunity Zone uh, conversation might have just went over their head? Like, so just break it down one more time because you you kind of rolled into it and let it flow. Okay. But I know that um, it's something that, like I said, a lot of people don't know and don't understand. So what yeah. exactly is an opportunity zone? Um, you know, I know an opportunity fund has to be created and, and that whole thing. Yeah, so most people, for some reason, think opportunity zone is like free grant money or something. I don't know. 
I'll get wholesalers calling me and be like, hey, I got this house in Opportunity Zone. You want it? I'm like, man, you don't understand. That has nothing to do with I, Exactly. I, I, yeah, okay, so Opportunity Zone. So the, the government has identified all of these low-income census tracts or these tracts that are, that are deprived of either jobs or food desert areas. And then they, those are areas that they don't personally have enough money to go in and, and to disperse grants to revitalize. So what they do is they they want to entice people that have the money, uh, the private companies, the banking institutions, the individually wealthy people, to invest in these neighborhoods. And so what they're telling them is is they're saying, look, we know there's like 2.2 trillion dollars in profits tied up in investments that you wealthy people don't want to cash out on because we know you're going to have to pay taxes on. So this is what we're going to do for you. If you pull that money out. Number one, we're going to give you a tax break on the front end. Instead of you on 30, 35%, we're going to tax you at 15%. Okay. So now that you got the money out of that investment, you got 85% of your profits. Then what we're going to let you do is we're going to let you go to these areas that we've designated that need investment. And if you buy something in this area um, and you hold it for 10 years, which gives it enough time to like really have a long-term effect in that community, then Whatever you make off of that, you get to keep it all, 100% of it. All, all of the, the profits, all the revenue, all the value appreciation, whenever you exit that and you sell it, you get to keep it all. So for them, it's like, okay, wow, this, this really makes sense. But there's a couple of factors that go into that that some people still don't realize. Number one, people, it still has to be a sound investment, right? Like you don't want to go in just any hood and buy something and put a million dollars into it and then in 10 years it's only worth 850 you know because then it, it really didn't serve a purpose so so it's two parts to it number one it still has to be an investment that's gonna make a, a solid return for them for them to even reap that benefit from it number two they have to substantially improve it which means they have to basically match the investment of the acquisition with additional uh, rehab or renovation or new construction on the site. So if you buy something for five million, you got to put five million into it and then hold it for ten years. Okay. So so that that's in a nutshell. Now there are tiers where they can pull out early if they want to, but they don't get the full tax benefit. Mm -hmm. um, so it, like I said, it's, it's a tier level. And then um, one one other loophole that I found out recently they can do is they can refinance. So they so long as they still own it for ten years. They get the tax benefits. So they can actually refinance once it's stabilized and pull a lot of their initial capital out. That's crazy. And not pay taxes. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and not pay taxes. Man, I keep trying yeah. to tell people, like, listen, first of all, yes, this was not created for us. But as long as we understand it, we can, you know, take advantage of it and benefit as well. You know, so many people want to get mad, like, oh, these people didn't pay taxes or wealthy people aren't paying taxes. Like, no, wealthy people are creating the, like, the government is creating the laws to benefit themselves and all of their friends. So as long as we just understand what the rules are, we can play in the games, too. It's also to incentivize people starting businesses and creating jobs and people developing real estate and improving communities. And so I don't even really see it as like a, an us or not us thing. I see it as like, who's going to solve that problem? And the person who decides to solve that problem is going to be incentivized because the government can't really do anything. The government can't do anything except through people. It's kind of like God. Like God gets things done through us. 
And so it's up to us to do these things. And they actually can't even really give you money. So that's why they give you tax breaks. They can't just give you money. So like, okay, well, what can we do? Well, we can make sure you don't have to pay as much taxes. And so that's how they actually create money by not making you pay that money. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. And, you know, it's not like, I think, like a lot of the people I'm talking to now, they, they welcome the idea of the project. They know they're historically black. They know, they, they see what I'm doing. And they like it and they want to participate in that. They're like, we, you know, we want to support your movement. We see what you're doing positively. And these are a lot of rich, wealthy white people, honestly, you know. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of it isn't prejudice. It's, it's not racism. Some of it's just pure capitalism, you know. Um, it's just, just how the world works. And we have to learn how to uh, adapt and be amenable on both sides of the coin, you know, and uh, work with them to be able to bring more dollars back into the community. I think it's interesting that you, you're working on projects and you're still finding new projects. Mm-hmm. What pushes that and what motivates that? And how do you how do you manage doing both? Because that's hard in itself. Man, it's all about team. It's all about leveraging the team. So uh, everything I have, I have delegated people that are on point for those for those things. And none of this stuff, when I started it, I knew how I was going to get to the finish line. None of this stuff did I have enough experience to say I'm an expert in. But I made sure that everybody I brought around me was an expert in whatever they do. And so especially with this project, like I'm, I'm learning a lot along the way, but my team is, they, they've done hundreds of million dollars in projects. Um, I had to bring on a development partner that's probably done $300 million in projects. Um, the consultant that's helped me with the Opportunity Fund, he's, he's raised about $100 million in the last year um, for these big type projects. So, you know, it's, um, you, you know, it's, it's kind of like the CEO never really knows every job. You know, you watch Undercover Boss CEO never really knows what the people on the, on the ground are really doing every day. Um, but as you build a company and you acquire other companies, you know, you, you have people on point in each location. So that's basically the same way I'm doing this. It's like, I'm not going to take it on if I feel like I have to carry it, you know. Um, that, and that's the only way to maintain that's support. Yeah. That's a really good bar. Um, <laughs> in doing all of this construction, as you've kind of turned into being large-scale developer, what is the biggest lesson that you learned? Uh, oh, man, to be to be uh, flexible in reaching the goal. Like, be st- steadfast on the goal, but being flexible in the approach because no matter how well you plan it out on the front end, something's going to change. Something's not going to work out. And, you know, having the humility to, to lean on your team to give you good guidance on it and know when to say, I don't know. Like, even if they ask me some questions like, Chris, is your project waiting? I'm like, no, I want you to make a decision because you know more than me. And it may be something that I'm missing in that process. Um, every time I've tried to pull all decision making into my own court, uh, it didn't come out. It didn't turn out as well as it could have, you know. Okay. So I think that's more important than any specific lesson, you know, because it's, it's every project is so different and so many variables. But when you lean on that, you know, you, you, you hedge your bet as much as possible, whatever you kind of do. Mm-hmm. And I think the other piece is the how, um, because there's so many folks who are like, well, how do you find these people? How do you find someone who's raised a hundred million in capital? How do you find someone who's done 300 million in development? That's a good question. Yeah. Networks, network, 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 network. Um, when you, when you intentionally put yourself in, in the places that these people are, then you you put yourself in an opportunity to be able to have conversations with them. Um, so I've been intentional about going to round breakings for developments. Um, I have a few friends in my personal circle that are, uh, that are very well connected with these people. 
And um, that's really all, all I could do. All I could do is make sure I, I maintain my own brand, my own public image, you know, make sure that I keep it clean so that anybody looks me up, you know, they see positive things. And then when they meet me and, you know, I come to them, not braggadocious, but just like in a spirit of, I want to learn, I want to grow, I want to get to the next level. Mm-hmm. And they go back and do their own research on me and they say, okay, we see where you are. We see, we see it. in you, we see ourselves when we were trying to get started. And you know, that that's all psychology, that's relationship, that's more important than anything. I mean, you can't, these people, you can't really Google them. You can't really look them up, you know what I mean? Right. The ones that really have the money, they aren't really like out in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. You know? They like keeping those low profiles. So. Yeah, it's definitely a personal network. I, I'm, yeah. I was actually blessed to have met Rudy Rasmus, who's uh, uh, a black pastor of a church called St. John's here in Houston. Um, actually, Beyonce's family goes to that church. He actually married Jay-Z and Beyonce. He's pretty cool. Wow. But he's heavy in real estate. He's, he's uh, his Actually, his grandfather was the first uh, African-American to work for the Republican Party in Texas. Then his grandfather ran a hedge fund in Dallas, and he got to work there in college. So, you know, people like that just have strong networks um, and, you know, are willing to expose you to, you know, what they have going on and their connections and their people. And that's, yeah. it's all about relationships. I love it. I, I really love everything that you just said, because one is like, Two, like you say, you made sure that you kept your personal profile clean, right? You weren't sure exactly where you were headed, but you knew, you know, where you wanted to go and you knew that was going to be an important factor. And then two, you know, 90% of success is just showing up. So you showed up, right? You didn't know what you were going to get, receive when you got there, but you made um, an effort to, like you said, be intentional, be intentional with putting yourself in the room, you know, on the groundbreaking sites, like to to show up and have those conversations. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think there's definitely a lot of lessons there because I feel like that's, you know, one of the reasons why a lot of people don't get started. They're just sitting back, beating their heads, like how, 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 how? Um, And like you said, it's being intentional with everywhere that you go, every conversation that you have, every post that you make. Um, I think that's, that's really solid. Gems right there. One of the things I like is that you got to go find the environment that you want to be in. Like you can't complain about the environment that you are in. You just got to seek those spaces. And when you're in those spaces, not only <clears throat> is it about like just being there, it's also like hearing the conversation, seeing who's there, who's shaking hands with who. Like that is what's going to take you to the next level. So that's super cool. I agree. And I'll say one thing that's been most eye opening to me is like, like when you're in fix and flip, I would always hear wealthy people saying, you know, the, the projects are the same. It's just more zeros on it. And then I would hear people say things like, I don't look at a project or my group doesn't look at a project unless it's $100 million. And I was like, man, that's got to be all cap. There's no way that these people really exist. Like it's all a facade. But then I realized it's like, okay, if you're a hedge funder, you're one of these groups that does these type of projects and you're paying these mid six figure salaries to every employee you have. And you're looking at a project that's ten million dollars, but the profit's only going to be one million. You're not going to stay afloat, right? So you got to find these really big projects where you can make twenty million dollars, and you you know half of that's probably going to go just to pay the salaries for your team. So now I'm like, okay, it does make sense. These these people really do exist, and it's you know it's just a completely different world. Yeah, yeah, it's one thing to be exposed to it, right? We talk about exposure a lot. 
um now being exposed to it you're like oh, okay this does really exist this is possible this is someone's reality it might not be right. my reality right. yet right. but it's right. somebody's reality and so when you see that now you can get comfortable with the idea that mm. this is something that you too can attain right right yeah yeah love it love it so cool before we ask the wrap-up questions i have one last question and the question is um, what are you reading? What are you watching? What are you studying to kind of stay on top of things uh, in your role? Man, you know what? I'll be honest right now. Um, I have been so focused on learning from the people in my network that I haven't really been reading because it's some things I just can't find in a book, you know. Um, I, now, if if I need some motivation, I'll go back and read some of my some of my staples, you know, um, can never get tired of reading Think and Grow Rich, uh, Entrepreneur Roller Coaster by Darren Hardy. Um, books like that that just kind of, you know, um, reaffirm, you know, what I'm going for. But at this point, for me, it's all about uh, the network and learning from the people in my network and absorbing that information um, because I'm learning so many new, new, uh, new segments of the industry. So that, that's really been my focus. Um, but like I said, those two, those books, for as far as mindset, are the best that's out there. Um, yeah, and I, I, um, let me think. What else have I read recently? Uh, man, I, I really, I really can't. I, I would say honestly, it's been about a year and a half since I picked up a new book and read. I just been so in the trenches on, on getting the work done. So, cool. Well, amazing episode. Um, we are going to ask our wrap up questions now. Um, seeing. So by our mouth, Charles. All right. So the, the first question is, who is somebody that you look up to and why? Man, ah, that question. Um, let me think. Who I look up to and why? I would say at this point, um, Don Peebles is somebody I'm really looking up to because he's like uh, the top of the game as far as African-American developers. Yeah. And he talks a lot about uh, thinking big. And Wait, and if and if done, if people do not know who he is, please yeah. make that your homework after this show. You'll be yeah. I'll be surprised when it's and drop people that I talk to in real estate and they don't know who Don Peoples is. Yeah. And so now, now that I said that, let me say the people's principles is a book that everybody should read if you want to get on a big on a big level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just watching how he was able to leverage what, everything we talked about. Networks being in the right room at the right time. And just going after something that people thought was impossible and making it happen. Um, yeah, that, that, that's exactly it. He's the role model for what everyone in real estate should really try to aspire to get to. So, Love it. Um, so what does success mean to you? Uh, success used to mean a dollar amount or a certain lifestyle. Now success just means impact for me um, because you know, the, the higher I go up the totem pole and the more people I see with money that are just as miserable as the people that I got out of a circle with, you know, it's just like, man, it's, it has to be a bigger purpose. So um, I say success is creating impact, changing the culture of our communities, the mindset of our communities of what we can do collectively and, um, you know, creating uh, more opportunities for more people to do things faster and to do the, the things that I've been trying to do and then giving them a shortcut, the cheat code to be able to do the same thing. Yeah. What is your favorite business or real estate book? Yeah, so um, I'm going to go with people's principles since I just said it. Um, it, it, it. Really impactful, really impactful book. Um, 
uh, Entrepreneur Roller Coaster by Darren Hardy is on the same level uh, because it just talks about the ups and downs and you know the frustrations that most new uh, entrepreneurs face and you know the mindset required to overcome them. And what do you think sets apart successful business owners and investors from those who give up, fail, or never get started? Uh, I would say tenacity and the uh, how you accept failure. You know, uh, if if you're conditioned to believe that failure is a reason to stop, then you no, know, you know you you're gonna stop, right? Um, and I think the successful entrepreneur just focused on always figuring out a way and always realizing that failure is feedback on what you need to adjust to move forward and, you know, um, what, what needs to be modified to, to get further along in the process the next time. I really think, to me, that that's the key. Um, some people aren't built for that. Some people are very ambitious, but, you know, they're, they're better. They, they flourish better in a structured environment with, with giving tasks and opportunity to grow in a company. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, we need successful CEOs to run our companies as entrepreneurs, you know, so we, we need everybody in every position. Yes, sir. And so thanks so much for joining today's um, podcast interview. There were so many, so many, so many um, lessons that you shared. We really, really appreciate you for coming on. Um, how can people connect with you, follow you, support what you have going on? Yeah, so if you go to chrisselengall.com, it's probably the easiest way to get uh, a link link to everything. I'm actually rebuilding all that platform right now. And, of course, social media, you know, mainly Instagram for me is underscore investor. Um, learnfromchris.com if you want to get into some of my learning portals, you know, to learn about different areas of real estate. Yeah, and that's it. Um, if you want to send me an email, chris at learnfromchris.com, I try to respond to as many emails as possible. I do answer my DMs too on Instagram. So I try to be an open book and be as accessible to people that have intentional, relevant questions, you know, so that, you know, because I remember. Not not Googleable questions, huh? Yeah, right, right. (laughs) You know, because I just remember being in that position and not knowing where to start. And sometimes people just need to be pointed in the right direction, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you so much amazing episode Charles you got any last final thoughts words I would I would just say that um, shout out to social media for allowing us to have access to people who are doing things like this because I feel like before social media if it wasn't on the news if it wasn't on BT right. we'd be ignorant to it yeah so, yeah um, and then and also what was on the news and what was on BT right it wasn't it wasn't anymore. conversations around this with people who look like us at all and then I mean you know your main capital raise I'm sure um, that you did Chris like what majority of that you know what percentage would you say came for, through like social media oh I didn't run a single ad all of that came from social media yeah yeah, yeah all yeah. of it from social media so yeah that's, that's a very powerful um, and congratulations to both of y'all. Both of y'all are really killing it too. So I've been, been following everybody's growth, you know. Yes. So it's you know everybody's doing things, and yeah, like I said, social media is a platform that's allowed a lot of this to happen. Right, right. Majority of it happen. Yeah. Cool. So episode one hundred and fifty-eight, I believe, is the number. But thank you guys all for tuning in to the rename Oglesby and Scott show. My name is Charles Oglesby with Miss Rashada Scott signing off.
Color. What's going on, podcast listeners? This is your man, Donald the Voice, the official editor and podcast producer of the Oglesby and Scott Show. And listen, I just had to come in and tell you that we appreciate your listenership, and I want to give you a special offer for listening to this podcast. If you have voiceover, podcast, or video editing needs, let's talk. You can go over to donaldthevoice.com forward slash contact, and I'll be happy to talk with you about what you need and how I can serve you. You want to sound good and look good so that people can feel good and do good as a result of listening or watching your content, and I'm here to help you make that happen. So let's talk. Go over to donaldthevoice.com forward slash contact, and we'll talk. Have a good rest of the day evening morning whatever time it is and i'll talk to you soon